arguably the most difficult passage in all of the book of Romans, certainly to outline, and um, so I'm not even trying. I've got some important points, and uh, we'll try to dive into it, and by God's help, we'll understand it a little bit better as a result of our being together today. We're picking it up in verse 12, where we left off, where it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted or imputed where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type or pattern of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, or for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, very strong word. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We've already looked at that word. For if because of one man's trespass, sin, or rather death, reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Has anyone over the past month or two noticed the Polk County law enforcement vehicles without officers situated around different places? I was dumb enough (laughs) to think that they were mere visual deterrents. (laughs) Set up as a sort of, you know, fear the law thing, you know. As you approach that search, it never occurred to me that these things had cameras. So... My wife calls me the other day, and she's laughing. She said, hey, honey. I said, yeah. She says, Polk County took uh, a couple of pictures of you a few weeks ago. 
I said, what are you talking about? Well, they, you, know that, you know that bridge down there where they lowered the speed limit? They lowered the speed limit there? <laughs> yes, honey. They lowered the speed limit. So there's a picture of my car. <laughs> Come here on the bridge. I ain't done yet. That's, that's the morning. That's the afternoon. You can take the pictures down now. Never argue with the tech guy. Smart Alec Doug. <laughs> I was completely unaware of the speed limit. That I was exceeding the speed, that is. And, of course, I was. And when the fine showed up for me breaking the law, I had to pay for it. They never had the courtesy of telling me they dropped the speed limit. Okay. The Jewish understanding in the Apostle Paul's day was that God gave the law to sort of counteract the sinful human impulse. In fact, there in Judaism, in the Mishnah, there was a proverb that said, the more Torah, the more life. But as we know now, and as we will see as we continue the book of Romans, the opposite is true. Paul points out, in fact, in verse 20, if you skip all the way down there, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And he's going to expand this when we get to chapter 7. The scary thing is, and here's where we drive in our point this morning, the scary thing is this. We are all too much like the Jews in our view of the law. I can prove it to you. Whether or not you realize it, we are all lawbreakers. In fact, every one of us have been predisposed toward lawlessness from birth, from conception, really. We are by nature, Paul said, children of what? Wrath. And every parent knows it's not long, not long at all, before that little beautiful bundle of joy, you know, becomes an object of terror. (laughs) Who taught you to do that? Nobody taught him to do that. And so... Some of us try to keep our our little ones from every evil influence, and good idea. But then you get frustrated that all of the shielding without does not eradicate the sin within. It got in there before you could shield it. Keeping them from all the really, you know, naughty boys and girls... 
all the bad programming and books. Just read to them Bible stories and Christian biographies and Christian programming and wholesome books. Good idea. Then, however, this is where the deception comes in. Without any external explanation, because you've done such a great job of shielding those little ones, they turn on you. They talk back. They lie. They defy. And as they grow older, the evil grows stronger. Is anybody with me yet? Solomon said, folly is bound up in the heart of the child. That's Discipline helps. It even drives it out for a time, so it drives it away, I should say. Behaviorally, they change. Outside, externally. But inside, there's something else that's brewing. And in many of you, it's still brewing. doesn't matter whether you were raised in a Christian home. They didn't take it away, did it? And for some of you, it's still dominating your life. You see, while discipline can drive away sin, only Jesus can take away sin. This passage is about Adam versus Jesus. Both are depicted as rulers who reign. That's what rulers do. And so that word reign is repeated in this passage five times. Adam over sin and death. Jesus over righteousness and life. King Adam or King Jesus? Somebody's got to reign. The Apostle Paul actually gave us a summary of these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's your summary statement of this passage right here. And we're going to look at this for the next couple of weeks. We'll probably try to get in more into the theology of this, maybe even more next week. But for now, just three realities from this passage of Scripture. Here's the first one. Sin and death came through Adam's initial disobedience. Clearly... Adam is referred to here in this passage as an historical figure, person. He was real. Paul doesn't write of Adam as some mythical idea, but as a real man created by God, just like the Genesis account records. He was the apex of God's creation. After everything else, this was very good. Intended to reign and dominate in righteousness. But as most of us know, he failed the test that was given to him. And so, in verse 12, you have two of three intruders that come in 
to earth. The the three intruders that were not intended for this world are Satan, sin, and death. Now, Satan isn't mentioned here, but the, the other two are, which is actually quite intriguing to me. That is that Satan doesn't get any ink here. Not here anyway, even, even though the historical account makes it clear that the role he played. Now, this is clearly talking about Adam and the entrance of sin, but let's just reorient ourselves to what is being alluded to. So Genesis chapter 3, and just the first seven verses, here's what it says. Now, the serpent, and this is Satan indwelling this, this uh, being, this, we don't even know what this serpent looked like. Apparently, it was upright. Very beautiful, very attractive, although the word serpent doesn't conjure up anything beautiful or attractive to us. Was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely. Die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. He's not even named. Who was with her. He ate. The eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there's the text. I want you to note just from the the reading of it. We're not going to exposit Genesis 3 today. But please note that Adam is barely referred to. Satan and Eve are the primary focus of attention in the historical account of how sin comes into... Would you agree? They're the primary focus of attention. Adam shows up, and without commentary, as to the interchange that took place between him and his wife, the text simply says, she gave, he ate, sin came. Boom. In Romans chapter 5, the drama of sin's entrance gives way to the theology of sin's pervasion, okay? Here, the primary actors in the historical account are virtually absent. No Satan, no Eve, they're not even alluded to. And what looks like a guy playing a supporting role in the actual saga when it occurred, takes center stage, namely Adam. Paul here is not concerned about the drama of sin's entrance into the world, but the transmission of sin through Adam to us. So in the the blame game that almost all of us like to play, no, let's just say it, all of us play the blame game. You can't blame Satan. I'll come back to that. The key phrase of wonder is at the end of verse 12. 
it's, we don't have a problem with the fact that we, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we can accept that if we take the literal account of Genesis, and we do, amen? And death through sin, we, we get that, people are dying. So death spread to all men because all sinned, by implication, all sinned in Adam. We get the fact that death passed to all men because we experience death as a reality all the time. I just visited a man the other day, a brother in Christ, whose wife is here today. He is literally on death's door in the fourth stage of cancer, and it's racking his body. It's taking his life away. I got a call yesterday from some of our dear friends, the Kimberleys, whose Donna's father passed away. Not a shocker, but a sad inevitability that just stuns us every time, doesn't it? Doesn't matter if they're 25 or 95. Death stinks. I hate it. And I hate funerals. I do them all the time. I don't mean I hate to do funerals for the people who are bereaved. But I hate the stench of death. It is our enemy. And I don't care what somebody says about that body laying in state. I hate it. Because it's a reminder, that's where I'm going to be. And God tells us, that's the reason why we do funerals. Right? Because we're all going there. Amen? Some of you haven't quite got that yet. We all experience it. We're all headed down that great day of reckoning with our frailty. And there isn't a thing we can do about it, dying that is, because we're all damned to die. But we don't all have to be damned. That's the good news of this passage. I mean, even the process of death stinks, doesn't it? Probably the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, the clock began to tick, and they began to age. I love sports. I love the competition. So when my knee, my other knee, the one that never bothered me before, started hurting a couple months ago, I went to the doctor and he gave me the, you know, good news, bad news thing, you know. Hey, good news is there's nothing wrong with your knee structurally. He says, you got tendonitis in it. The bad news is you're 55. It's going to take a while to get better. I don't want to deny, I don't want to live in denial, but aging is, is, it's taken me out like it's taken the rest of us out. The law referred to in this passage of scripture in verse, in verse uh, 12, verse 13 rather, where he says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. The law referred to here, and we're going to get to it's the way it works in our lives uh, when we get to chapter 7. But for now, the simple point is, even though the law brought obvious awareness of sin, 
it being spelled out, you know, namely through the Ten Commandments and beyond, people still died before the law. Now, why did they do that? Well, here's the simple answer. Because they're sinners. That's all he's saying. And sin will take us out. It's going to take you out. It's going to take all of us out. In Eden, we lost heaven on earth. Heaven is in heaven. It's not here. Quit looking for it. And quit trying to live to be 110 years old. Have you ever seen a 110-year-old? It's not a pretty sight. And some of you aren't looking so good right now. The aging process is a constant reminder of what this sin principle in our bodies is doing. It's taking us out. It's debilitating. It causes us to get old and decrepit and senile and get Alzheimer's and die. And we have Adam to thank. Because he brought it in. We can thank him. But we can't blame him. Secondly, Adam is a type or pattern of of Jesus in that he imputed sin to us while Jesus imputes his righteousness to us if we believe. Well, this passage is a series of contrasts between Adam and Jesus. Here Paul says the one The one individual, Adam, we'll call him the lesser, was like the other, Jesus, the greater. He's called a type. Did you see that there in verse 14? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Types are like Patterns or shadows of things to come. And it, it, the fulfillment, the type in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New. Often, and most often, that, that anti-type or that fulfillment is Jesus. The ark that took Noah and his family. The ark, Peter tells us, is a type of Jesus. How is it a type of Jesus? Well, because it became a place of safety during a time of what? Judgment, right? And actually lifted them above the judgment, right? So it's a perfect type of Jesus. And there's only one door, and there's only one doorway to heaven, amen? The rock that Moses struck was, is told, we're told in 1 Corinthians, a type of Jesus. Just as the rock was struck, so Jesus was struck. And that's the reason, by the way, that's the secret as to why Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Because he destroyed a type. When he was told to speak to the rock, because you only strike the rock once. Jesus dies only once, amen? But Moses struck it anyway. Thus destroying a type. And it was at that point that God says, you're done. You're not going in. Now he's in heaven. We'll see him. But the rock was a type of Jesus. And so the tabernacle, virtually every article of furniture in there is a type of Jesus. So 
I get the types in Scripture like Joseph is another one. I won't go on and on. But, but Adam, a type? If he was a type, what a terrible type. Actually, therein lies the key. Adam was indeed a type of Christ. The text tells us he was. And in the greatest of ways, just in a negative way versus the positive. And that's what this text keeps bringing out, the negative versus the positive. Here's how Adam gave us, imputed to us, all of us, something. He gave us sin. Not all that nice of a thing to do, but that's what he gave us. He transferred his nature to our nature. His sin to our nature. We might say, since every man is in Adam, he is an old creation. Old things are fixed in him. All things are getting worse. Jesus, too, gives us, imputed to us, all who believe, that is, something. He gives us his righteousness. He transfers his nature to ours. Did you know that? His righteousness to our nature. And we can say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Look at verse 19. Is this not the language of imputation? For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made, very strong word, caused to be sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Is not this the language of imputation? God made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin to what? Become sin. That's, that's imputation. We call this double imputation, actually. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Keller is right when he says, Adam was a covenantal representative for the whole human race. We are in covenant relationship with Adam. So that what he did in history is laid to our account, unquote. There are three great imputations in the Bible. Here they are. Look at them. Adam's sin to you, man's sin to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness to those who believe. Now, now look at that. Adam's sin. This is what we're looking at in Romans 5.12. This is his imputation to you and me. Man sin to Jesus. This is what makes salvation so amazing because you literally have a reversal of the curse. Adam dumps his sin on us. We dump our sin on Jesus. He takes it and he takes it. But it, it, it's, it's not enough to have your sins taken away. You need to be made right. You need to be declared right. That's what justification does. And Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's why we call it double imputation. And there's the three great imputations of the Bible right there. Jesus' righteousness to those who believe. One more as this introductory to this passage those who receive Jesus, 
will escape judgment and reign with him forever. That's the third point. There are a lot of repeated words in this passage, and I think we could really get bogged down by these things. Eleven times the word one comes up, referring to either Jesus or Adam. And in every case, it's referring to the power that each man possessed. One leads to disobedience, one leads to condemnation, one leads to uh, justification and righteousness and life. For Adam, his disobedient plummeted all of us into sin, death, and certain judgment. For Jesus, much more, and that phrase occurs a bunch of times, grace, life, righteousness, justification, and reigning. Over and over again. Look at verses 15 through 17. Just look at it. And he says, for, I'm sorry, I'm actually getting ahead of myself. That's, I'm going to get to a different word there. The word reigning occurs several times as well. But just look all the way down to the very end. So that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, great commentator, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, died about a decade ago, give or take. And uh, he was just a a, a great man of the last century. And at his funeral, R.C. Sproul uh, just eulogized him. And uh, at the very end, he paused and he said, Heaven has received a prince. I tell you that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are more than a prince. You become a joint heir with Jesus, and you will reign with him. This is an amazing thing. My personal favorite of all the lines and words that are continually repeated in this passage is the phrase free gift. Some of your Bible just use the word gift. But that's where I wanted you to be when I said verses 15 through 17. Just look at it. But the free gift, not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the, say it, free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace the, uh, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And I emphasize to you, it's a free gift, but verse 17 simply tells you how to get it. What do you have to do? It's one word I'm looking at. You got to receive. You see it there? And with that, Paul, the great intellect who Peter said, man, I can't even understand him sometimes. 
becomes a lot like John, who said very simply, with all this in mind, as many as received him, to them, God gave the right. God gave the authority to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, if you still want to play the blame game with your sin, there's plenty of blame to go around. Amen? This passage alludes to some of them. You can put the blame on Satan, except that he didn't force anybody's hand. You can put the blame on Adam, In him, we all sin. You can put the blame on yourself. Verse 16 says, talks about the many trespasses, and that's, that's referring to us. Look at verse 16 where he says, For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's, that's referring to you and me and our personal sins. So you can blame yourself. Or you can put the blame on others. That's what we're best at, right? Amen? I mean, ever since sin came into the world, what's the first, what's the first thing they did? What's the first sin they did? They blame shifted. They pointed fingers. <laughs> the woman you gave me. The serpent deceived me. If he'd have had the guts to talk, he'd have found something to blame it on too. But at that point, he knew what he was looking at. A lot of blame to go around. What we need is not blame shifted. We need blame upon. That's what we need. We don't need blame shifted. We need blame upon. Put the blame on Jesus. He already took it. He took your blame. He took our blame. You can't blame him for anything he ever did, although they tried, right? And yet he took our blame. The next time you try to defend yourself or blame shift, You ought to be like, I, I heard the story of a guy who stood before a judge, a Christian judge. Obviously, this would have been years ago. And this just came to my mind. The guy was arguing with the judge. I demand my rights. I demand my rights. And the judge looked at this man and said, you want your rights, but Jesus took all your wrongs. We can't blame Jesus for our sins, but we can accept the fact that he took the blame for us. That's imputation. And then receive the truth that he'll give righteousness to us. That's the imputation I need to have my sins forgiven to be made a child of God. You got to receive it. And some of you have not done that. 
If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, realize that on the cross, he took your blame. So stop pointing fingers. You're guilty. You're a sinner. Your self-righteous life will stand before God someday, and you will go to hell. I don't care if you were raised in a fervent Christian home. If all you do is talk about all the things that you do, if all you do is talk about your own self-righteousness, all the things that you do, and you're not wrong, you're not wrong, and you blame everybody else, you're just like a Pharisee. Stop shifting blame. Start taking blame for your own sin and trusting the one who took your blame. That's a good thing. You get eternal life. You get your sins forgiven. You get a new outlook. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this great passage of Scripture, which I know, Lord, ugh, this, is, this is the passage, Lord. I didn't, this is why I didn't want to preach this book. And you know it, Lord. I kept coming across this passage. And I think, oh, my goodness, this is so hard. But I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to understand it a little bit more. Recognizing, Lord, that the greater Adam, Lord Jesus, is the one who must reign in our lives. We realize, Lord, whether we, whether in, whether we recognize that we had sinned or not, your word tells us we're sinners. And most of us, we just know. But some of us, Lord, have hardened ourselves. We've, we've become self-righteous. We, it's just, we're like the Pharisee in the temple. Bragging about all the things we've done. We need to be like the tax collector right next to him, beating our chest, looking down, asking for your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the great blame taker though you didn't deserve it. Thank you for taking our blame and giving to us your righteousness and life that we might reign with you. And I pray for those in our midst who have never placed their faith in you, Lord Jesus, that today might be the day where they bow their heart. That might be you right now. You're thinking this through and you're thinking, yeah, this is what I need to do. I need to, I need to give all my shame and blame to Jesus who took it for me. And why don't you just do that right now? Believe that he died for you. Believe that he rose again for you. Place your faith in him with all your heart. And he'll give you his righteousness. And we'll give you the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.